Then a few months ago, with Luke's narrative of the events leading up to and surrounding the birth of Christ. Since that time, we have considered Jesus as the Son of God in the passage of the boy Jesus in the temple and again at Jesus' baptism. We have kind of accompanied Jesus, listened to his teachings, observed his encounters with people. We have walked through the story of his passion, his suffering, and his death. And then last week in the passage about, or just after his resurrection on Easter Sunday, and we've gone through the Gospel of Luke um, in all of these things, trying to fix ourselves upon Jesus, our Lord, our Christ, our Savior. And that has been a good journey for us, I think. It is always good to center on Jesus. And we as a church are trying very consciously to be centered on Jesus, our attention fixed upon him, our worship fixed upon him, our lives built around him, our ministry spurred on by our love for him. Question is, how do we, how do we center on Jesus? What does it mean? It's easy to, to talk about being centered on Jesus or easy to talk about being focused on Christ. But how do we do that? If, if I want to know Jesus better, how do I do that? If we as a church want to fix our attention upon him, how do we do that? If Jesus is going to speak to us to reveal himself to us, how does he do that? Well, the answer to those questions we know has something to do with the scriptures. But as soon as we say that, there is an immediate tension for us, isn't there? There is, on one hand, our genuine desire to know Jesus and to love him better. And on the other hand, there is the reality of a certain dryness in our experience with the scriptures. And this is probably particularly true uh, in the Old Testament. I mean, we, we enjoy reading about Samson and Gideon and Elijah and everybody's favorite, David. But what, what about Ezra and, and Deuteronomy and Ecclesiastes and Zephaniah? So there's, there's this tension between a desire for Christ on one hand and a certain experience of dryness in the scriptures on the other hand. Now that's not true for everybody, but it's true for enough of us consistently enough to know that it's a very real tension. And I think that this, this tension in us arises from the fact that we have not made the conscious connection between these two things. By, between a life centered upon and delighting in Jesus on one hand and a life centered upon and delighting in the scriptures on the other hand. And the reason I think we haven't made the connection between those two things is because we've either forgotten or maybe never knew an essential fact about the Old Testament. And this essential fact about the Old Testament is what we have revealed to us in Luke chapter 24. I think that's what this chapter is about. Luke chapter 24 begins with the resurrection account. We read that last week. The women early in the morning go to the tomb to anoint Jesus' body. They're surprised to find the stone rolled away. Jesus' body is not there. What do they find? Well, a couple of angels who proclaim to them that Jesus is risen. He's not here in the place of the dead. He's risen. 
And the women, sort of freaked out, kind of excited, run and tell the disciples. The disciples don't believe them. They think that what the women are talking to them about, about Jesus raised from the dead and angels, it's all nonsense. It's an idle tale. But Peter, at least, goes to the tomb, checks things out for himself, doesn't find Jesus there, of course, but walks away not understanding what has happened. And then right after that, Luke recounts two episodes that take place on that very same day, on that Easter Sunday. And the, the episodes parallel each other. Allison just read the second of the two for us today. The two episodes, these two encounters with Christ, parallel each other. The, two, uh, the same dynamic happens in both stories. And I think that the, re- the reason that Luke records both of them is to emphasize this essential fact about the Old Testament that I think that we have lost sight of. The first episode is the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Uh, There are two of them, not two of the 12. Jesus had lots of followers. So two of the other ones are walking the road between Jerusalem to the town of Emmaus, a journey of about seven miles. And as they walk, they are talking. And, and they have lots to talk about. I mean, think about it. These two followers of Jesus, what have they just experienced this weekend? The one whom they have loved and followed, the one in whom all of their hopes for their nation had been centered, was publicly, humiliatingly crucified on Friday. And they are left reeling, wondering what has happened. And two days later, then they hear that some women have gone to the tomb and the angels have told them that Jesus is alive and they've heard this story now. They don't know what to make of it. They know that Peter's gone but hasn't sort of seen anything and all they know is that Jesus' body isn't there anymore. And they're wondering what's going on. And I can imagine... I can imagine listening into their conversation, kind of observing them talking. Lots of interruptions, like back and forth, like, oh yeah, but the women did this this morning. Yeah, but can we believe them? But angels, well, there are angels. I know, but we've never seen angels. Jesus alive couldn't be. We saw him dead. I mean, it couldn't possibly be. And, and interrupting each other, lots of hand gestures, trying to process the events of the weekend. And so they're talking as they, as they walk along with probably a tone of despair lacing their conversation. And I wonder, too, if Emmaus is their home, if that's where they're going, home. If after the events of the weekend, they're kind of like, well, what do we do now? I don't know. Well, let's, I guess we go home. and Maybe that's where they're going. And what they don't know as they walk and talk is that Jesus is walking right behind them. You ever have it when you're walking and you sort of subconsciously know that somebody's walking behind you but you don't really notice or pay attention and I think that's probably true of them. They probably heard footsteps behind them and at one point, you know, then Jesus sort of pulls up alongside and kind of walks beside them for a while and again, they don't notice him. They probably think he's just going to walk right on past and, and go where he's going. And then this. Oh, and then Jesus interrupts their conversation and, and says to them, what is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? In other words, hi guys. <laughs> I couldn't help but overhearing. What, what are you talking about? And then Luke says, and then they just stood there looking sad, Luke says. And I, th- I think they're a little bit annoyed. And say, 
What do you mean, what are we talking about? <laughs> are you like the only person in Jerusalem who doesn't know the events that have taken place? This is what they say. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? Like, what do you think we're talking about? Same thing everyone's talking about. And then, I love this, Jesus, who of all people knew exactly what had taken place in Jerusalem, says, oh, really? What things? That's what he says, what things? And that sets them off. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early this morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they'd even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. That's what we've been talking about. And Jesus said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? In other words, are you surprised and dismayed at what has happened these days? Don't you realize that what has happened is exactly what God has been saying for centuries would happen? Are you wondering about the angels saying to the women that Jesus is raised from the dead? Don't you know that the scriptures clearly say that the Messiah would suffer and then after that, glory? And then, verse 27 of Luke 24, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now remember, they still don't know who this is, right? Who's talking to them. They have no idea. They don't know who this guy is who's giving them the Bible study of their life. Could you imagine? How many, how many of you would, would go to a lecture, an hour lecture on Jesus in the Old Testament given by Jesus? Like, so they're having the Bible study of their life, but they don't know who's given this to them. But they say later on, they reflect later that their hearts are burning while Jesus talks to them. And when they get to the town of Emmaus, they get there too soon. They want, to, they want more, but they're at their destination. And Jesus, it's so, Jesus is so funny sometimes. He, he makes it look like he's going to kind of carry on and continue on his way. And they prevail upon him to stay. Like, don't go. Stay with us. Come over for supper. And so he stays, and, and over supper, Jesus, as the guest, who they don't know, remember, the guest does what the host would normally do. He breaks the bread, blesses it, and gives it to them. And it's at that moment, finally, that their eyes are opened and they see, and it's Jesus. And then he's gone. Now, we need to pause. Just imagine what is going on in the hearts of the disciples right then. Like, isn't that cruel of Jesus? 
Okay, they, again, they've just lost everything their hopes had been in, lost, devastated this weekend. Now there's the beginning, the stirrings of hope, and, and this stranger, as he talks to them from the scriptures, they're starting to think that maybe what they thought was the end isn't the end anymore, and the stirrings of hope are you know, beginning to, to stir in their hearts again, and then suddenly they see him, and it's Jesus, oh my goodness, and then, and then he's gone. It's like, Jesus, no, wait, we're your followers, we love you. Where are you going? Come and stay with us. It's very strange, I think, that Jesus reveals himself and disappears. And when you're reading the scripture, if you, if you come to something and think, boy, that's really odd, stop there. Because usually something significant is going on, and I think that's, what, that's the case here. Wouldn't it have been good for Jesus to spend more time with them, with them knowing who he was? He could have revealed himself to them earlier or at least stayed longer with them once they saw who it was. But he doesn't. What does he do? He lets the scriptures testify to him. He reveals himself to them from the Bible is what he does. And that's very, very significant. Again, think about it. Jesus, he, I mean, he could have shown up in glory on the road and said, it's me, Jesus, I'm alive. Here I am in my glory. I'm the king of heaven and earth, the creator of all things, resurrected. Let me tell you that my death was a sacrifice for sin and you need to go tell everybody that they can have forgiveness because of my sacrifice for them. That's your mission. He could have shown up and told them that, but he doesn't do that. He shows up incognito, and opens the scripture to them. He lets the scripture, the word of God, our Old Testament, he reveals himself to them from the scripture instead of revealing himself to them directly. And by the way, as Jesus does this, he, uh, he is affirming the Old Testament as the word of God, the sacred and authoritative, perfect revelation of God because Jesus goes to it to reveal himself. Not only that is it the sacred authoritative word of God, that there's gospel in the Old Testament. That there's God's redemption and salvation in the Old Testament. That Jesus is in the Old Testament. And that is the essential fact of the Old Testament that often we lose sight of in our reading. Jesus said in John chapter 5, he said this to his religious opponents, by the way. He said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness to me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, is all about Jesus. Beginning with Moses, that is Genesis, the books of Moses, right through the Psalms and through all the prophets, it's about Jesus. And so to drive this home, Luke records then the second episode, or maybe the second part of the one episode, what we read this morning. The two disciples then, stuck in Emmaus, say, oh, we're in our hearts burning when he was talking to us about the scripture. Oh, no wonder it was Jesus himself. And they go all the way back, another seven-mile trip back to Jerusalem. They burst into the upper room where the disciples are still holed up. They're probably panting. They've gone 14 miles on foot today. 
And before they can say anything, the disciples grab them by the shoulders and say, guess what? It's true. It's true. He really is alive. He appeared to Simon Peter. And then they say, I know, I know. He appeared to us too. And they tell the story about what happened to them on the road to Emmaus. And then Jesus shows up now a second time. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Now remember, for most of them, this is the first time that they've seen Jesus since his resurrection. For most of them, this is the first time they've seen Jesus either since he was on the cross or maybe even since they abandoned him in the garden. Remember when he was arrested and they all fled and they weren't at the cross? Now they're seeing Jesus for the first time since then. And of course they're startled and afraid. And they're not even sure it's him. They think, well, maybe it's a ghost. And so Jesus, again, does something, I think, humorous and entirely practical. He says, okay, give me, I don't know, you got fish, you got bread, you got some. give me something to eat. Ghosts don't eat. Watch this. And he eats. Okay, I'm flesh and blood. Look, it's me, it's me. And then, then he said to them, these are my words while I, that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. He opens, he opens their minds to understand the scriptures. Do you remember a few years back these things called magic eye pictures? It'd be a, a picture with some kind of pattern on it, and if you looked at it in a certain way, a, a 3D shape or picture would emerge, and you could see it. My dad could never see those. He could, he could look at those things all day, and he would just see the pattern. He could never see a picture Somebody can read the scriptures all day and not see, right? That's the, the religious leaders had done that. They searched the scriptures, but they couldn't, they couldn't see. They couldn't see Jesus. The disciples knew the scriptures, but they couldn't, they couldn't see that it was all about Jesus right from the get-go. That's why they despaired at his death. And we read the scriptures, and we read the Old Testament, and I wonder if we read the scriptures not seeing. If we read the Old Testament and we don't see Jesus. And you know what? We are not to be faulted for that. Please don't feel bad. It is normal to read the Old Testament and not see Jesus until God himself, Christ by his spirit, opens our minds to understand the scriptures. This is what um, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. In verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In other words, until the Spirit of God opens the mind, enables the person to understand, then all of this is just so much religious writing. And so Jesus opened their minds to understand 
the scriptures. Also in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, this, is, this was written before the Gospels were written, incidentally. This might be one of the earliest New Testament documents we have. The Apostle Paul, in speaking of this gospel that he preaches, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And so Jesus is showing his followers, opening their minds to understand that the scriptures prophesy his death, his resurrection, the, the proclamation of forgiveness of sins to the nations. I, I don't know what Jesus, what Jesus told them from the Old Testament. I wish, that, I wish that we did. I mean, he talked to them on the road to Emmaus for probably you know, a couple hours at the most. I mean, that whole discourse could have been a book in our Bible and not expanded it all that much. What did he, what did he say? I don't know. But here's some thoughts. Did he show them his suffering and death from Isaiah chapter 53, the servant of the Lord who would bear the sins of many, who would be considered stricken by God? Did he go to Exodus chapter 12 and the the sacrifice of the Passover lamb and by that substitutionary sacrifice, the lives of the firstborn of the Israelites were saved? Did he go to Psalm 22? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This, this picture, this prophecy about the crucifixion. Did he go to Genesis chapter 22? When Abraham, the near sacrifice on Abraham's part of his beloved son, Isaac, as proof of his full devotion to God. And later, of course, God's sacrifice of his beloved son as proof of his full devotion to his people. It wasn't a near sacrifice. Nobody intervened and stopped that. Did Jesus show them his resurrection from Isaiah chapter 53 again, where after giving his soul for the sins of many, that he would yet see many offspring, that he would live? Did he go to Psalm 16, where the apostles often went in reference to the resurrection, where it says, God, you will not let your Holy One see decay. You will not let him rot in the grave. Did he go to the images of the resurrection implicit in the rebuilding of the temple or the restoration of the Israelites after slavery and captivity? Did he go to the stories of the many third-day stories in the Old Testament where there is a revelation of God's salvation and power on the third day? Like Esther, who goes to the king on the third day to deliver her people. Like Jonah, who gets ejected from Death by digestion on the third day from the whale. Did Jesus go to the stories of Elijah and Elisha and their raising from death the only sons of their parents? Did Jesus show them forgiveness for the nations from the stories of Jonah and Naaman and Ruth and Rahab or from the story of the Exodus when the Israelites left Egypt and lots of other non-Israelites came with them? Did Jesus show them himself In Noah and Joseph and Moses and Esther who were deliverers of God's people. In Joshua and David and Hezekiah and Josiah who were kings and rulers who who humbly exercised their authority knowing that they were under the authority of God. 
Did he show them Isaiah and Micah and Samuel and Elijah, who as prophets faithfully spoke God's word to his people? Did he show them himself in the tabernacle, in the Ark of the Covenant, as the place where encounter with God takes place? Did he show them the many specific prophecies about himself? Maybe he went to these places. Maybe he didn't. He could have gone anywhere in the Old Testament because the whole Old Testament is somehow about Jesus. It all points to him. It all forms the context by which his life and teachings and character and death and resurrection would be understood. Moses and the Psalms and the prophets all spotlight Jesus. They all prepare the way for him. They all show us Jesus in some measure. And this is the essential fact about the Old Testament. It is about Jesus. It all points to him. It all reveals him. It is by the Old Testament that the apostles and even Jesus himself interpreted the significance of his life and death and resurrection. Again, the Jews never saw it. The disciples never saw it till Jesus opened their minds to understand the scripture. He opened their minds. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus later said, didn't our hearts burn while he spoke to us from the scriptures? The burning heart and the mind that understands. That is, that's what we need, isn't it, when we come to the scriptures? We don't just need a mind that understands. We don't just need to grasp the facts, get our doctrine straight, be able to recite the creeds and pass the test. But nor do we just need passion and feel generically great about God or religion or the songs pump me up or something. We need a passion that responds to truth. We need truth that's lit on fire by our hearts when we read the scriptures and when we see Jesus there. So we come back to where we started. This tension between desire for Jesus on one hand and the relationship of that desire to the scriptures. So I ask again, do we, TBC, Thornhill Baptist Church, do we really want to be all about Jesus in everything that we do? Do we want to know him? Do we want to be centered upon him? And the flip side, the negative, do we lament sometimes dryness, spiritual dryness? Do we lament the dryness of our, of our time in prayer and our reading of the scripture? Are we caught in a sin that sort of doesn't seem to let go of us and we can't find freedom? And then do we wonder about the relationship of those things to the scripture. I want to I invite and challenge you and challenge us together to carve out time for the scriptures. But not just to read the scriptures, but to approach the scriptures. And whenever you read Exodus or Obadiah or the Song of Solomon, to say, Lord, open my mind, open my heart to see Jesus here. We see the living word in this written word of God. How can we do that? Well, there's a number of, a number of ways that we can do that. Um, one is that every Sunday morning we come here 
And almost all of my preaching is from the scripture, specifically a text often working through a book. And there is a chance for us at least once a week to come and engage with the scriptures. And I'm, I know I'm not the most charismatic. I'm not a motivational speaker. I know that my tendency is kind of toward teaching. And, you know, and I know that the ideal is Mark Driscoll with PowerPoint kind of thing. But I'm, I'm trying. I'm trying. But will you meet me halfway? If I, if I preach to you, will you then listen toward me and we'll meet and engage in the scriptures? Together, And when the scriptures are read, most importantly, and then taught to listen for Jesus and to come prayerfully and say, Lord, where in this text, where do I see Jesus? Today's text is an obvious one, but where do I see Jesus today? What in this text, what in this message would you say to me this morning, Lord? How do you want me to be different in my life in Christ because of the scripture today? We can start there at least once a week. Uh, life groups. Um, there's no better curriculum than the scripture. Not even a book about the scripture or a study guide. I mean, those are I'm not saying those are bad, but if we get together as life groups to deepen spiritually and to form character, then you you can't do better than just start with the scripture and read the scripture together and pray together and say, Lord, this is your word. It's about Jesus. Show us Jesus. Change us. And then talk together through the scripture. In other ministries, hilltop kids, the kids who are up there, the leaders, teach Jesus from the scriptures. Youth, teach Jesus from the scriptures. Praise teams, Think Jesus and scripture as we pick our songs. Choir, when you practice, when you sing. Remark this morning before the service how often what we sing is either scripture directly or reflects scripture. The first two songs that we sang this morning were that. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see you high and lifted up. Then we know where that's from. Isaiah chapter 6. The prophet Isaiah sees the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his robe fills the temple and the angels are singing holy, holy, holy. And in the gospel of John, John says Isaiah wrote that because he saw Jesus. So that's a chapter about Jesus and we sing, Lord, put us in Isaiah's spot this morning. We want to see you high and lifted up and respond by singing holy, holy, holy. So often when we sing praise teams, choir, hymn, we're learning scripture. And just to be really conscious of that and intentional is a great thing in all of our ministries. But all of these things, preaching Sunday, life groups and other ministries, those are just supplementary to our own personal, individual engagement with Christ and the scriptures. Uh, in your bulletin this morning, you have this. It's a white page. Um, you can fold it in half one more time and it makes a nice slim guide. All it is is all the books of the Bible with a little square for each chapter. You don't have to read through it in a year, anything like that. Just begin to read and check off a chapter once it's read. If you need a help like that, part of what this does is it ensures that you read broadly. Like, oh, for the last year and a half, I've only read the New Testament or the Gospels. I think I'm going to read Nehemiah or Hosea or work through the Psalms. So this is, this is just there for you if you need if you need that help. But to be in the scripture regularly. Do I make it, am I saying you have to read every day? No, I don't read the scripture every day. 
but I read more days than I don't read it. And I, I've created disciplines, boundaries in my life that ensure that I'm in the scripture very regularly and not just three or four verses at a time. Just that kind of structure helps me. So if that helps you, then I offer this to you as well. I just wanted to, to make a comment about, about sin and scripture as well. Sometimes we find ourselves caught in a pattern of sin that we feel bound in, that we can't break free from. And if you've ever been in a place like that, you will know, you know that when that happens, something else also happens at the same time, that our appetite for the scripture dries up, that we can't be caught in sin and immersed in scripture at the same time. And, and I had a number of conversations with people who are sort of caught in an addiction of some kind. And invariably, they'll say, when we talk about the scripture, well, I'm, not, I'm not reading it very much. Now, am I saying that the scripture is the magic bullet to overcome that kind of sin and temptation? Yes, I am. I really am. The, am I saying that if you read the scripture tomorrow, on Tuesday, you'll be a new person? No. But I think I can promise us, for us who are Christians and have placed our faith in Christ, that a, a daily or near daily immersion in the scriptures over time will form your character. It will change you. It will build faith. It will give strength. And my own experience is that at a time in my life when I, I needed to break free of what was a pattern of a particular sin, it was when I decided to embark on a program of memorization of a certain chunk of scripture that was the turning point in my life. And quite literally, the scriptures cleaned me up. And I think that it'll do the same for you. If you are caught in sin, whatever you do, read the scripture faithfully and give it time and give it time and you will find a change taking place. You will. The word of God is living and active. It is powerful. You will. Not just because it tells us how to live, but because Jesus is in here. And as we engage with Jesus, we are changed. Our statement of faith for our church, which is a statement of faith of our denomination, um, says that we believe in the scriptures as the authoritative, divinely inspired word of God, our rule for faith and practice. In other words, God's word, we abide by God's word in telling us what to believe and how to live. And that's true, but I would suggest that it's also more to it than that. It's not just a doctrinal manual telling us what's what. It's not just a record of who God is and what he has done and what he continues to do in us. It doesn't just tell us how to live the scripture is a living word in which we engage with Jesus. That, that it's the indispensable means by which God reveals himself. Not just the facts about himself, but he reveals himself and by which we know Jesus in the scripture. And that is the essential fact of the Old Testament. And I think that the reason that we find the Old Testament sometimes dry because we go to the Old Testament like we eat broccoli. We know it's good for us. 
But what if we went to the Old Testament and said, Lord, open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you as I read this. Show yourself to me. And may our prayer be, every time we open its beautiful pages, that the written word would be to us the living word, Jesus himself would interpret to us the scriptures concerning himself, that our minds would be opened and our hearts burn within us as we see in its pages our beautiful and most glorious Savior. And together we say, Amen. Let me pray. We are desperate for you. And the air that we breathe is your presence with us, so vital for life itself. And our daily bread on which we feed on is your word broken to us, spoken to us. And oh Lord Jesus Christ, we come to you as your people together this morning and ask you that you would do for us what, we did to, what you did to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, to the disciples in the upper room, that you would open our minds to understand the scriptures and to see you there, that you would light our hearts on fire, that you would help us to engage in, immerse in, commit to the scripture, and that this living word would become the source from which we know you, and therefore love you, and therefore worship and obey and serve. May we be a people of the book, not for its own sake, but because that is the only way by which we can be the people of the Lord Jesus Christ. This we pray. In your name, Jesus, in your name, amen. And we're going to celebrate the breaking of the bread. Remember the death of Christ this morning. Deacons, will you come at this time and we'll prepare to celebrate communion together. Pray that we will see Jesus this morning. On the table, there is bread, which represents for us the body of Christ, which went to the cross and bore the punishment of God on our behalf. It was beaten and pierced and nailed to the cross. And we have the cup, which represents for us the blood of Christ. And again, going back to the Old Testament, the imagery of the sacrifice, that it was the blood of the sacrifice that was said to wash away the sins of the people or in other imagery to cover the sins of the people so that when God looked, he didn't see the sin, he saw the sacrifice. And in our context, when, Jesus, when God looks at the death of Christ, uh, he sees redemption and salvation and not our sins anymore. This is what we remember so I'll ask the deacons now if they'll distribute the bread. And, uh, and as they do that, I'm just going to 
sing, just to help ref- uh, focus our thoughts a little bit more on the Lamb of God, sweet Lamb of God. Your only Son, no sin to hide, but you have sent him from your side to walk upon this guilty sod and to become the Lamb of God. Your gift of love they crucified, they laughed and scorned him as he died. The humble king they named a fraud and sacrificed the Lamb of God. O Lamb of God, sweet Lamb of God, I love the Holy Lamb of God. Oh, wash me in His precious blood, my Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. was so lost I should have died but you have brought me to your side to be led by your staff and rod and to be called a lamb of God oh lamb of God sweet lamb of God I love the Holy Lamb of God. Oh, wash me in His precious blood, my Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Oh, Lamb of God, sweet Lamb of God, I love the Holy Lamb of God. Oh, wash me in his precious blood, my Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. Oh, wash me in his precious blood, my Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. body of Christ who gave himself for us. Let us eat together with thanks. Likewise, the cup. There's an image in the book of Revelation of the saints whose robes, as they stand in the presence of God, are spotless white. And the robes, what we wear, represents our works, what we do. And as what we have done is washed in the blood of Christ, it becomes spotless white. Not filthy rags anymore. We're dressed in righteousness. We sang that this morning because of the sacrifice of Christ 
for us for our sins. This is what we remember when we drink the cup together. So let's distribute the cup in thanks for the holiness that has become ours. simply reflecting Jesus himself who gave himself fully 
for our sakes. And we respond and say, we give ourselves fully to you. Let us drink together with thankful, burning hearts. I'm going to ask us to close simply by standing and saying together. And the context for this is not just our morning worship, but our whole life. As we live our life in the coming week, when we read the scripture, whatever it is that we do, say, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, I want to see you. Let's say together, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, I want to see you. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord, I want to see you. May you see him this week, especially as his word is opened to you. Go in peace and know that the Lord himself walks with you on your road this week. Amen. Amen. You are dismissed.